And tonight we're going to just try to wrap up rather quickly about the doctrine of the church. Some things I'm going to go over tonight, uh, just some resources to pass along to you. You can go on to uh, Amazon and order them. Uh, You ought to get this one, Church History Made Easy uh, by Timothy Paul Jones. He's a professor out of Southern. He just hits the highlights of church history. Uh, You ought to get that one. Probably for laymen, if there was any, any church history I would recommend to you that would just hit the highlights and sort of give you a flavor of the big rocks in church history, it might it would probably be that one, okay? Church History Made Easy. It's actually put out by Rose uh, Publishing. And then uh, uh, also tonight, because we're going to be talking a little bit about it, the Reformation for Armchair Theologians. The Reformation for Armchair Theologians. Glenn Sunshine is his name. Glenn Sunshine. So if you want to understand the Protestant Reformation a little bit better, that would be a good one, okay? The Reformation for Armchair Theologians. If you want a good church history textbook, uh, very readable, extremely readable, would be Bruce Shelley's, Bruce Shelley's Church History, okay? Simply entitled, Church History. Church History in Plain Language. This is the fourth edition. Uh, but it's, it's not tiny print. I mean, it is, it is a lengthy book. It's about 525 pages. But it's a fairly easy and fast read. Uh, anyway, Church History... Uh, if you want a good one on the Reformation too, William R. Estep, Renaissance and Reformation. He was a professor of mine at Southwestern. Uh, he's passed away now, but a famous Baptist historian. He particularly was a noted authority on the Anabaptist. Uh, Renaissance and Reformation, William R. Estep. Uh, well, I guess that's the last one. I'm, well, if you want if you want another textbook on church history, uh, Williston Walker. This was one used for years and years and years and years in colleges and seminaries. A History of the Christian Church by Walker. Uh, probably you'll find Shelley's more more readable than that though but anyway just some things I I just wanted to mention to you I hope you are interested a little bit anyway in church history because uh, as it has been said before there were people thinking about the Christian faith long before you and I arrived on the scene right well uh Tonight, what I want us to do is just, again, for the sake of those who were not here last week, a quick review of sort of where, where we've been, where we were going, where we headed, and sort of how I want to wrap things up tonight. Uh, what did we say the doctrine of the church is called? Ecclesiology. Ecclesiology. 
Ecclesiology. Okay? Wayne Gruden said, The church is the community of all true believers for all time. There's the local church and the universal church. We're a local expression of the church, and the church universal would be all true believers uh, of all times. Okay? Uh, John R.W. Stott said, The church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. Uh, What were some of the metaphors of the church that we talked about last week? Metaphors, I'll say it more plainly. Body. Bride. God's house. Family of God. Pillar and foundation. Of the truth, what'd you household of faith? Anything else? Okay. Again, just reviewing, uh, Gruden listed 12 things that are a sign of a pure and obedient church. I've given you these in the list, so I'll read them quickly. Right preaching of the word, proper use of the ordinances, right use of church discipline, genuine worship, effective prayer, effective witness, effective fellowship... Biblical church government, spiritual power and ministry, personal holiness of life among members, care for the poor, and love for Christ. And then also you have the list for Mark Dever, the nine marks of a healthy church, expositional preaching, biblical theology, a right understanding of the gospel, a biblical understanding of conversion, a biblical understanding of evangelism, a biblical understanding of church membership, Biblical church discipline, a concern for discipleship and growth, and biblical church leadership. Uh, We also said that the attributes of the church are what? One, holy, universal, and apostolic, right? One, holy, universal, and apostolic. Church going back to apostolic the apostolic message we do not believe we do not hold to the apostolic succession but we certainly believe that the message is to go back to that of the apostles we also talked about the church and the word we're not free to believe anything this is our document uh 
the church is the inspired and errant word of the living God. And it provides what we need for faith and practice. Uh, We talked about spiritual gifts. Uh, We talked about the list out of Ephesians 4. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. And then from Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, the other gifts. Gifts like leadership, administration, teacher, uh, mercy, service, helps, uh, giving, so forth and so on. Then we looked at the mission of the church, the Great Commission. And what did we cover last week? What's the energy of the church? Prayer. Okay. Obviously in this, in this list too, we covered the ordinances of the church. And we looked at leadership of the church, qualifications uh, for uh, different offices in the church. So if you've been with us the whole eight weeks... Uh, you have been exposed to all of that. Now, tonight, tonight we are going to close our study. And I don't know that it'll take us all the way to 6 o'clock. But knowing me, it will. But we are going to talk about the issue of Reformation, the issue of Reformation. It has been said that the church is reformed and always reforming. Reformed and always reforming. What is meant by that? Still trying to get it right. Still trying to get it right. Okay. What else? That's one way to put it. As our knowledge increases, um, we adjust our theology to more accurately reflect biblical knowledge. Okay. Our theology continuing to be tweaked to come in line with the plumb line of God's Word. Okay. Why is this needed so much? Because of the sinful nature of man. Uh, if, you, if, if you don't think this is always a need, just go home tonight and read the book of Judges. Okay? What did you say, Ronnie? Oh, yeah. <laughs> just think, think of the, the book of Judges. I tell you, the seven cycles of, of sin and judgment. The church is always in need of renewal because the tendency of of human beings is that we falter. What do you remember about the Protestant Reformation? Hmm? Okay, the posting of the 95 uh, theses on the church door at Wittenberg, Germany. Now, the church door, that was the, 
in a university town, that was the bulletin board, okay? So it wasn't unusual to have messages posted there. Uh, And originally, he sort of posted it for the academic community, but sort of word got out what all it was, and it caused quite a stir. You had your hand up. I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, pre-Reformation would be going back to John Huss and, and Wycliffe. Yes, they hated him so badly, they dug him up and burned his bones and, and um, then scattered his ashes. Boy, now that's being hated, isn't it? But really, Wycliffe and Huss fall under the category what is called pre-Reformation. Uh, what happened that was sort of the icing on the cake? Now, there's a lot more to it than this, but what was the icing on the cake with Luther? The indulgences. Johann Tetzel came to town and preaching uh, the purchase of indulgences. Do you remember what it was for? They were building St. Peter's Basilica and needed funding. Yes. And so uh, Tetzel was quite a fundraiser. And uh, he came up with a little jingle. You remember the jingle? When the coin and the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. You don't want your poor mama who loved you so much to continue suffering in purgatory, do you? You wouldn't want that. So here, you need to buy the indulgence so you can get her out sooner. And I mean, they even specified how many days and years and so forth you could, you could buy mama out of purgatory. Well... Sure. Luther took a trip to Rome. This, this was while he was still very much a part of the Roman Catholic Church. And he was, he was looking for that spiritual renewal. He thought a trip to Rome would help him. It, it didn't. It, it didn't supply him what he was looking for. Uh, but anyway. Uh, the Reformation laid down... Five, five solas. What are they? Sola. Scriptura. Okay. Sola. Fide. Solus. 
Christus. What do those mean? Scripture alone. Faith alone. Grace alone. Christ alone. And for the glory of God alone. Why was this such a need, for example? Okay. Okay. Rome said authority is not only the scripture, but there's also two other sources of authority. What are those two other sources? The Pope, the decrees of the Pope, and tradition. So for the Catholic, it was that three-legged stool, the scripture, tradition, and the Pope. And the reformers came along and said, nope, sorry, church needs to get back to scripture alone determining faith and practice okay why was this such an aid because what was the church teaching in addition to faith works exactly uh, really this this factors in with that and and this too only only salvation only by by Christ now, obviously, in Protestant circles, we still hold to all of these today, right? But, as has been pointed out, the church is always in need of uh, reformation. Now, now, folks, when one thing we don't often think of when, when we think of the Protestant Reformation and the church before this, what, what was the church before this? The Catholic Church. At least until 1054 when it split between the Western and the Eastern. The Western Church being what? The Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Church being the Eastern Orthodox Church. Question. Is there no um, record of a remnant of people that are apart from the Catholic Church that carried on? You, you had different, different groups, uh, smaller groups. But essentially, the church was the... You know, when we think about Catholics, un, until this year, and then until the Protestant Reformation, when you spoke of the church, you were Catholic. 
Now, one thing that split the church between Western and Eastern in 1054, now there were a lot of political factors, uh, but the... Filioque clause. You know what the filioque clause is? David Fink, tell us what that is. <laughs> oh, mercy. Uh, the Nicene Creed, you've heard of that before, right? Uh, the Nicene Creed and, and then... Uh, you know, the, the Nicene-Constantinople Creed, as it was called, talked about the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father, right? You with me? In the, in the Creed, that the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father. That's in the 325 version and the 381 version. Uh, that it, the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father. But beginning in 589, something was added to the creed. Do you recall what was added? Exactly, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Based on John's gospel, Jesus saying that when he returned to the Father, he would pray to the Father and they would together send the Holy Spirit. Well, the Eastern Church rejected that so in the eastern orthodox church today the nicene constantinople creed that portion of the creed that talks about the holy spirit continues to say proceeds from the father whereas in the western in the western church it says he proceeds from the father and the son so that sort of in 1054 that sort of sealed the split it's, and again, it's called the uh, filioque clause. Uh, but anyway, I just want you to understand when we talk about the church, we are talking about the Catholic church. And then after 1054, we're talking about the Catholic church and the Eastern Orthodox church. So until the Protestant Reformation came along in the 16th century, if you were a part of the church, you were a part of a Catholic church. Or you were a pagan. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that. Well, again, the church, and because of, because of what was going on in the Catholic Church with tradition and popes and indulgences, you have the Protestant Reformation and, and churches splitting off. 
Then you, and, and even in the Reformation, you have more the magisterial reformers. You know, Luther and Calvin and men like him wanted to continue as long as possible to be a part of the church. They were hoping to reform the church from within. But then you come along with others and like our roots, going back to the Anabaptist, Anna, which means rebaptizers. It was a term of derision because they were, they were calling on believers, adult believers, to be baptized by immersion. So they were called the Anabaptists, the rebaptizers. They were a part of a group known as the radical reformers. So you had the magisterial reformers and the radical reformers. But Reformation, church always always needing reformation. Now, I want to do a quick flyover tonight showing you how this is nothing new. And we don't have time to do an in-depth study tonight on all five letters that we're going to turn to. But I want you to find Revelation 2 and 3. Because I want to show you how, even in the New Testament uh, times, Jesus was calling for reformation with his church. We're not going to do the historical background or detailed analysis or anything thing on, on these letters, but you, you'll recall five of the seven churches, the Lord was calling for repentance. That the church, even by the close of the first century, was in need of reformation. And what I'm trying to get to tonight is, in the church, even today, anytime we have strayed from God's plumb line. We are in need of reformation. And how is it that we typically stray? Well, we're going to see that tonight. He says in Revelation 3.1, To the angel of the church in Sardis, oh, excuse me, 2.1, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. In chapter 1, the lampstands were defined as being the church. And Christ walks among the lampstands. Now notice what he says in verse 2. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. 
Consider how far you have fallen, repent, and do the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What did the Lord like about the church at Ephesus? They held to sound doctrine. What else? They were a hard-working church, patient labor. Uh, and, and the word here is that they basically worked their fingers to the bones. They worked to the point of exhaustion is what the phrase literally means. They were a hard-working church. They were a doctrinally sound Church. They were discerning. They would put to the test those who claimed to be apostles and found them to be false. Sound like a good church? Sounds like a good church, doesn't it? But what's the condemnation? You've left your first love. In the church, we can continue to attend and serve hard and work hard, but we can we can lose our first love for Christ. It can happen, right? It can happen while you are in the middle of serving hard for the Lord. You can lose your first love. Sure. The the purpose of any ministry. Love for Christ has to be Chief and foremost in your heart and my heart in the church. What what was the Lord calling them to do? Reformation. There at Ephesus, right? Spelled out by repentance and returning. To their first love. Now, today, is there anybody in here that I'm talking to tonight, or are you in danger of? Uh, are you in danger of listening to the edicts of popes, or of buying indulgences? Or believing in purgatory or, or doing anything like that. Or, or holding to tradition above scripture. I, I hope none of you in here would be guilty of that. 
But is this right here a reformation that you and I need to pay very close attention to in our lives? Have you maintained your love for Christ? Is it first? We do. Constantly. It's a reformation that in the church today, in a Bible-believing church, we have to give constant attention to. Because you can, you can lose your first love for Christ, even in the midst of doing ministry. And again, there's only one thing that he says you need to do if that, if that explains you. You need to repent. Well, let's move on. The church at Smyrna, he had nothing bad to say. So let's move on to the next one. Pergamum. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. What Pergamon was known for was being a religious center. Religion seemed to thrive at Pergamum. There was an ancient saying that whenever any weird idea was expelled from one place, it was sure to land down at Pergamum. Cults, four key cult groups had landed down at Pergamum. The cult of Athena, the cult of uh, Asclepius, the cult of Dionysius, and the cult of Zeus. Now, Pergamum was the true capital city of Asia Minor. It was a liberal university town where the socially elite in Asia Minor lived. They viewed themselves as being the educated progressive bunch. That's how they viewed themselves at Pergamum. They hosted a library of 200,000 volumes, second only to Alexandria, Egypt. In fact, Egypt was so jealous of Pergamum, they cut off shipments of papyrus to Pergamum 
forcing them to develop some other kind of writing material. They developed parchment, a kind of writing material out of animal skins. Today, when somebody graduates from college, what do we say you get? You get your sheepskin, okay? That goes back to Pergamum. What was the accusation? Compromise. Compromise. The frog in the kettle concept. Y'all have all heard the frog in the kettle concept, right? There was compromise after the way of Balaam. You may remember this occupies a very significant portion of the book of Numbers because Balak, the king of Moab, hired Balaam to curse the children of Israel. But every time he opened his mouth to curse them, what did he do instead? He blessed them. And so being unable to curse them, he counseled Balak to do what? Do you remember? He counseled Balak to get their women to intermarry with the Israelites and corrupt them slowly into worshiping their gods. And that's what happened over time. And so at Pergamum, they had survived open opposition from the outside, but they had begun to compromise from within. They had started to tolerate just about anything and everything. And so at Pergamum, the church was crumbling from within. And it all began with toleration. It was a slippery slope downhill. Again, what was the Lord's counsel? Repent. Is the church today in America in danger of tolerating with its uh, tolerating and compromising with its culture? You better believe it. And so a reformation that we always need to pay attention to is that of not compromising. Staying off of that slippery slope. It never ends well. Well, next was Thyatira. To the angel of the church at Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you're now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways." I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. The sin at Thyatira was the toleration 
of evil. Specifically, they were putting up with false teaching in the church. False teaching that was leading people deeper and deeper into sin. One of the darkest periods of Old Testament history was was when uh, Ahab was king of Israel. And he married a Canaanite woman by the name of Jezebel. Now, Jezebel was, was a wicked, immoral, and idolatrous woman. She was so wicked that no one in their right mind ever names their daughters Jezebel anymore. Just like nobody names their son Judas. Ahab was such a terrible king that he allowed his wife to introduce Baalism into Israelite life. Baalism was a fertility cult of the Canaanites. It involved idolatry. It involved prostitution. Jezebel attempted to spread Baalism all through Israel and she succeeded in bringing God's judgment on the nation. So there is somebody in the church at Thyatira that is being compared to Jezebel. Not her real name, but it's her character. She was a teacher in the church there, apparently maybe the most prominent teacher in the entire church. And she was a false teacher. And she was leading the church astray with doctrine. You know, you go preaching doctrine today, and a lot of people in modern-day churches will head for the door. You know, they want the, the five ways to make your marriage sizzle or five ways to make your finances sizzle. They don't want doctrine. So many people today. No, don't look at me strange. I'm telling you, there's a lot of people today who do not want doctrine taught in the church. They just, just make us feel good, preacher. The little... It's all about love and making me feel good and entertain me. Uh, and that slippery slope that goes into false doctrine. Teaching error in the church. Is that a danger today? Yes. So another reformation in the church that we need is always calling ourselves back to true doctrine, biblical doctrine. That's another reformation that we always need. Then Sardis. Look at the next one. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. 
Remember therefore what you've received and heard. Hold fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. At at Sardis, there was the old city and the new city. The old city was built up on a hill. And it was like a fortress. There was basically one way up, one way down, and then a wall around the city up there. Cyrus, the Persian king, had attacked Sardis in 549 B.C. After 14 days of failure, he made a deal with his men. If one of his men could figure out how they could get up there and attack the city, that soldier would be greatly rewarded. Well, his soldiers were studying the issue out. One night, one of his soldiers noticed a soldier up top drop his helmet over the wall. And he watched how that soldier scaled down a a back little pathway down the back side of the cliff, got his helmet and climbed back up. That soldier up there didn't realize somebody was spying on him and watching him. So this soldier in Cyrus's army down in the valley watching this was able to assemble all the troops together and lead them up that night up that back pathway that they weren't even watching. They went over the wall and everybody up top was so secure that nobody could ever take their city. Guess what even the soldiers up top were doing? They were sleeping. They were sleeping. They weren't even watching anymore. And so they lost their city. Now, if you think that's bad enough, you'd be amazed that the very same thing happened to them again in 218 B.C. when Antiochus the Great seized the city. What's the Lord say to the church at Sardis? What's he say to them? Wake up. Be vigilant. I have not found your deeds complete. You need to wake up and give attention to what the Lord has called you to do and what the Lord has commissioned you to do. Can the church today just sort of go to sleep about its mission and ministry? You better believe it. So spiritual vigilance is another reformation we need to constantly pay attention to. Now folks, with each one of these letters, there's extensive background I'm not going into. We don't have time with each letter. But really the, the message to each town, the church in each town was tailor-made to that town because historical circumstances that had happened in that town, just like Sardis. Well, what's the last one? Laodicea. Because again, nothing bad was said about Philadelphia. 
So Laodicea, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? These are the words of the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you don't realize... That you are wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. You see, folks, they, were, they had a banking industry there. They had a wool industry for clothing. And they had a medical school there with the eye salve. See how... Each message is tailor-made to that city. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. So what was the problem at Laodicea? They were lukewarm. They weren't cold or hot. They had a knowledge, a knowledge of the Lord and of the truth. But they had just kind of ceased to care one way or the other about it. Again, complacent. Yes. And they declined the money. Yes. Yes. They, they didn't want Rome's help when the earthquake destroyed the city. And Rome was going to rebuild the city for them. They said, we don't, we don't need your money. We've got plenty, thank you. Yes, from about seven miles away, uh, water was piped in. By the time it got to them, it was lukewarm. Uh, again, they were just... That, that was their spiritual condition. So what was the Lord calling them to do? Repent. Now, folks, you see all of the, when you look at all these churches together, whether it's being lukewarm or complacent or half asleep, you just don't care much anymore one way or the other or doctrinal impurity, doctrinal laziness, moral complacency, compromise with the culture, losing your first love. See, see, all of these things were going wrong with the church even by the end of the first century. And again... I don't think we're in danger of what Martin Luther faced with John Tetzel and the Pope. But I do think churches today are very much in danger with these things listed here. Reformation in that sense is Always needed.
We go back to the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles 7, 14. What did the Lord say there? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, repent of their sins, and pray, then I will hear, hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. What was the Lord calling for in Israel? Reformation. Reformation. It's always a need because of the condition of the human heart. Left to ourselves, we are like water that will seek the low point. And we just sort of cascade downward to that. And so in our lives, we always need to be examining our hearts in the church and coming around to God's plumb line. To Ephesus, he said, if you didn't repent of your lack of, you know, you've left your first love, I'll come and remove your candlestick. What was the candlestick? The church. Or the lampstand. The church. And guess what? The church at Ephesus ceased to be. Apparently they did not repent. Just goats. (laughs) They lost their church. They didn't heed the Lord's word. Reformation. I wanted to close this series on the church just on very practical letters, uh, um, practical topics, things like prayer and talking about our mission two weeks ago, our mission and, and prayer and spiritual gifts and reformation, just very practical things that we need to give heed to. In the church today. As we said at the beginning. There's no other organization on the face of the earth. That Jesus said I will build. But he did say that of the church. He loves his church. It's popular today for people to ignore the church. Or write the church off. The Lord loves his church. But we've got to be a church. Keeping with the plumb line of what God's given us in his word. And in our own individual lives and in our corporate body. We need to continue to hear those words of the risen Lord. To repent. To he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. The Lord speaking, are we listening? How's the Lord speak? Through his word. Are we listening? And are we repenting? Or are we just sort of like water that lets nature take its course and we go down to the lowest level?
I pray that we won't be that way. But that we will hear the clarion call of the Lord to be the people that he's called us to be.